By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall any guests or contributors to the podcast or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the Neuroendocrine Cancer Awareness Network be responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Nets Get Real with NCAN. I'm your host, Mike Wayman, and today we have Dr. Jim Howe, or James Howe, from uh, the University of Iowa. He's going to be talking to us a little bit today, but before we go into that, uh, I got to remind everybody, November 10th through 12th is the 2022 NCAN National Conference. We're getting close. Zebras Take Atlanta. It's taking place in the Marriott Marquis, where over 20 net specialists will be on hand to share presentations and answer your questions. Registration is open, and for more information, go to netcancerawareness.org and to all of our social medias, at netcancerawareware. And now, I would actually like to welcome Dr. James Howe to the show. How are you, sir? Hey, Mike. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. We're uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. I've I've we've seen each other at uh, man, it's got to be dozens of conferences before, and uh, I've seen your your presentations dozens and dozens of times. And I always I know how awesome and informative they always are. So it's really great to have you on the show. Well, I don't want to bore you with another presentation, but I think uh, that's your job. So. Well, to, to be fair, I, I sit through them twice. I, I sit through them when, when we record, and then I have to edit the videos. So, you know, if I'm inviting you on, it means that I, I must enjoy watching them. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, before we get into your presentation, I, I, I want to ask a couple of questions real quick. Um, so first, what, what led you to become a net specialist? Well, you know, I did my training in general surgery and then surgical oncology, and uh uh, that means taking care of uh, cancer patients by surgery. And, uh, you know, I was broadly trained in endocrine and GI tumors. And in 1999, a remarkable man and woman came to the University of Iowa named Tom and Sue Odoricio, who NCAN knows very well. Oh, yes. Tom was one of your frequent speakers. I think he spoke at almost every meeting you've had. Uh, yeah. Uh, a great man who unfortunately just passed on this last year, and we all uh, miss him dearly. But Tom came in 1999 yes. and uh, identified me as a person who, you know, might be good to work with uh, with neuroendocrine tumor patients. They had established a, a great presence at Ohio State, and then Sue Bodericio came to the University of Iowa to be head of pediatric uh, hematology oncology. Uh, and Tom came as an endocrinologist and neuroendocrine tumor specialist. So he kind of came around clinic one day and, you know, just said, hey, would you be interested in working with me in this neuroendocrine tumor clinic? And I'd been at the university for about three years, and I was looking for a new challenge. And uh, I 
didn't really know what would be involved. And I said, Tom, yeah, sure, I'd love to. And uh, that started just uh, probably one of the greatest uh, work relationships of my career, uh, without doubt. Yeah, yeah, the, the Odoricios are uh, are family. They're, they're family with the Waymans as well, so uh, for sure. Um, so why, why do you think it's important for patients to be involved in their treatment plans? Well, I think for any patient, it's really important to understand your disease as best you can. And it's it's difficult because a lot of people don't have medical training or background. And there's a lot of new terms that they've never seen. There's anatomy, physiology, how the body works. And all of a sudden, when you have a disease or a cancer, you've got to pretty quickly get smart about it. And, uh, and it's very difficult to, to really... Uh, understand a lot of these things initially. So I think it's important to, uh, you know, get a hold of the right people who can educate you not only about your disease, but also what the treatment options are. So, you know, you don't want to passively go along because with neuroendocrine tumors, there are many different options. There are many different decision trees. And depending on where you go, you might get different advice. So I think it's important to empower yourself uh, through talking with your primary care physicians, your local medical oncologists, and then uh, through support groups, through NCAN and other patient uh, advocacy groups to, to really learn as much about your condition as you can. So then when you're given various options for treatment, you can make the most educated choice because the options are not always clear. Yes, absolutely. Now, in regards to getting proper care, uh, what do you think is the number one most important decision a net patient can make? Well, I think, you know, once you get over the shock of the diagnosis that everybody has to go through, you know, work with physicians you trust. If you have local physicians that you, you know or trust, or maybe you've never seen a physician, but, you know, start with your local physicians they'll often refer you to a specialist or a medical oncologist as a primary entry point. But a lot of those individuals, especially if you don't live in a, a large population center, may not have a lot of experience with neuroendocrine tumors. And most people, you know, most physicians are very honest and uh, trustworthy people. And they, they'll tell you that, hey, you know, I don't see a lot of patients with neuroendocrine tumors, but I do know that not too far away from us is a specialty center where there are some really good people. And so, you know, start local, gather your information, get a sense about whether your needs can be taken care of locally, or a lot of times you may learn from that physician that they just don't see very many patients with neuroendocrine tumors, and you might want to go elsewhere to a center with at least a few specialists who, uh, have experience in neuroendocrine tumors. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I, th I think that the, uh, you know, th that's the absolutely the one thing that's a common thread is that seeing the center of excellence or seeing a specialty center uh, at least once and then have them connect with your local doctors if, if they're not, you know, close enough to you. I think that's super important. And I, and I, I can't, I think we can't stress that enough for sure. And as you say, it may just be a consultation where you get advice and they're going to advise you to do the same thing that your local doc or medical oncologist is going to do. And that's fine. But at least you've explored that avenue because sometimes people won't really be aware of all the treatment options. And, and you don't want to really miss out on 
the fact that maybe the best thing for you is treatment X instead of what the one person locally is familiar with who might not know all the options. And that's where education of yourself at an NCAN conference and of your physicians going to the North American Neuroendocrine Tumor Society meetings can be very helpful or, or the regional meeting, meetings of NANETS where there's an outreach to try to educate local physicians at, at various areas throughout the year. Sure, sure. Um, so today, uh, what are you going to be talking to us about? Well, I wanted to focus it on small bowel neuroendocrine tumors. So they're one of the more common types of neuroendocrine tumors. And if that's okay, I think we could cover this in moderate detail. I don't want to get too sophisticated. Um, I know it's a podcast, so I'll try to say things, uh, you know, describe things by uh, word. But um, I guess, Mike, you'll also have an accompanying presentation. So I'll have some yes. Yes. So if anybody uh, is listening to this on your streaming platforms, uh, also know that you can catch this on the NCAN YouTube page. So all of these episodes all have uh, video accompaniment. So uh, without further ado, I'll take uh, I'll take myself out of here and um, you go ahead and take the floor, sir. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. So what I'm going to talk about is small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, and those are also known as carcinoid tumors. Um, these are one of the most common sites of uh, neuroendocrine tumors, and, and perhaps a lot of people listening today have been affected by these. Um, with respect to the sites of neuroendocrine tumors uh, throughout the body, small bowel tumors, you know, rank probably second or third total. Lung is the leader, but a lot of those are kind of benign, although not all of them. And one of the things that's really interesting is that the incidence of these tumors have increased about sixfold over the last three decades. And the reason for this isn't exactly clear. Part of it is probably because a lot of people get CAT scans and uh, either the small bowel lymph nodes that might be enlarged or even liver metastases that we see in a lot of patients may be seen on those CAT scans. The other thing is there might be some environmental reasons for this. I mean, it's possible there are things in our environment that we're not sure about, but that we're exposed to various chemicals, microplastics, cell phones, who knows? Um, but there might be something in the environment that may also be contributing. But we don't really know that. But I think the imaging and the fact that people get CAT scans is really one of the reasons it's increased so much since the 1970s. Now, with respect to these tumors, if uh, when people present uh, with these tumors, about a third of them are going to be just within the small bowel itself. And then about 40% will have metastasized of the regional lymph nodes, and about 30% may have spread to the liver. Now, in our practice at the University of Iowa, we see patients with a little more advanced disease. And so I would say about 85% of the patients that we see have involved lymph nodes, and about three quarters have liver metastases. Um, with respect to the involvement of whether it's just the local site, the small intestine alone, uh, or the lymph nodes or the liver, that really helps to predict how long people will live in general, depending on how far these tumors have spread. And <clears throat> if the tumor is localized to the small intestine in a large national database, the median survival is 170 months. So that's almost 15 years. And if lymph nodes are involved, it's not that much less. It's about 145 months. But when the tumors metastasize to the liver, then it's cut in about half to about 70%. So 
So one of the more important predictors of how long people live after the diagnosis of these cancers is how far it's spread. And that's really the same with any cancer. Now, small bowel neuroendocrine tumors are the most common site of neuroendocrine tumors in the GI tract. And the incidence is about 10 to 12 per million. And about 50% of patients have tumors that are in multiple places in the small bowel. In other words, they might have two or three or eight or as many as 120 tumors. Uh, more commonly, just a few, though. Um, these tumors tend to be well differentiated. And what that means is when you look at them under the microscope, they're orderly and they don't look really like bizarre cells that have are more likely to have a, a very malignant behavior. <clears throat> they present usually uh, kind of in a slow fashion. Patients might develop symptoms over a long period of time and not really notice the fact that they've developed flushing or diarrhea. Um, and a lot of times when patients present, they already have had uh, metastases uh, identified, like in one of those CAT scans I mentioned. <clears throat> when we see patients that we think might have these tumors, then we start with a careful history and physical. And one of the things we're going to ask for are, are standard symptoms of carcinoids, which are um, uh, flushing, diarrhea, sometimes uh, asthma attacks, um, and you can have abdominal pain and cramps, uh, and even a bowel obstruction. And on history, you know, there may not be a lot to see. Sometimes you can notice that a patient's face is red from a, you know, chronic flushing. You may, if they have a big liver that has a lot of metastases, you may actually be able to feel the liver. And sometimes if there's abdominal distension, you might be able to notice that, uh, there, there's kind of a more protuberant abdomen. Uh, we also get a series of tests, uh, blood tests that are pretty helpful for this. And I'll talk about those in a second. And then there are some x-ray tests that are pretty helpful. We talked about CAT scan being one of the most uh, useful uh, imaging tests. And we'll talk about a few others in a minute. Uh, endoscopy, where they put a scope either in your colon from below or from above through the stomach into the small intestine that way uh, is useful, but it's not a common means of diagnosis. And the main reason is that the small intestine is kind of in between the stomach and the large intestine. And the colonoscopy only gets to the end of the small intestine. And the scope that they put in your stomach doesn't really reach the, the second part of the small intestine, the jejunum, and then doesn't reach the ileum where most of these tumors are, which is, you know, further down in the small intestine. <clears throat> We mentioned some blood tests. We generally check a test called serotonin, and that's a hormone that these tumors make, and that some people think it's responsible for flushing and diarrhea. There's also a fairly useful marker called chromogranin A. There's a product of that called pancreastatin that we also follow. And, um, and in the urine, there's a good test called the 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid, which is basically the breakdown product of serotonin. And so those can be used to make the diagnosis. <clears throat> the x-rays, you know, that, that I think is the most utilitarian is the CAT scan. The CAT scan shows the liver pretty well. Uh, it also shows the small intestine fairly well and the mesenteric lymph nodes that are near the small intestine that are usually the tip-off to me that somebody has a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor. We also use MRI scans, and MRIs are really good for imaging the liver and the pancreas. Uh, not as good for the lymph nodes in the abdomen, although they can still show them. And then finally, the DOTA PET scan, 
which can either be with copper or gallium, uh, which targets somatostatin receptors, which are receptors on the cell surface of neuroendocrine tumors. Um, this is a way to kind of specifically image tumors, and it can be really useful for seeing liver tumors, mesenteric lymph nodes, even small bowel tumors, and it's very useful for looking at the whole body. It's, a, it's surprising how many people with advanced small bowel neuroendocrine tumors who have bone metastases that you wouldn't see on a CAT scan, but you might see on a PET scan. So that's a very useful adjunct as well. People who uh, have these tumors are probably well aware of something called the carcinoid syndrome. Carcinoid syndrome is, is really it's constellation of symptoms that people who usually have metastases from small bowel neuroendocrine tumors get. And it, the most common feature is flushing, which is seen in about 94% of people. Diarrhea is the second most common, happens about three quarters of patients. Some patients will develop what's called right-sided heart disease. And what that means is that the serotonin and other hormones can kind of cause changes in the heart valves in the right side of the heart, <clears throat> the tricuspid and pulmonic valves. And then some people will get bronchoconstriction. Now, these symptoms, again, are usually in patients who have liver metastases because the liver normally metabolizes the hormones that come out of the small bowel tumors. Uh, but if the tumor has spread to the liver, then the hormones are released into the main circulation and aren't degraded by the liver. Um, <clears throat> often these symptoms can be brought about by eating epinephrine, emotion, ethanol, which is drinking alcohol, or exercise, and that's known as the five E's. Commonly, I'll see a patient who would, would show up and they might have a CAT scan that shows a lump or a mass kind of near the end of the small intestine, often with some adjacent enlarged lymph nodes uh, and or liver metastases. And um, sometimes there'll be thickening of the small intestine uh, and some abnormal looking loops of intestine. That is not uh, completely definitive for a carcinoid. You'd need a tissue biopsy to be sure, or if you saw any of those areas light up on a DOTA PET scan, that would be pretty good confirmation. But oftentimes we know just based on the CT scan and then maybe some elevation of markers or with the, the symptoms I just mentioned that they indeed have a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor. So biopsies aren't always necessary, but they're commonly performed and it does help us to know what we're dealing with. <clears throat> now these tumors, as I mentioned, they usually start in the wall of the small intestine. Uh, in between the inner lining, the mucosa, and the outer lining, the serosa. And as these tumors grow, they get bigger and bigger, and they can grow through the intestinal wall. And when that happens, they can spit off cells into the abdominal cavity, and that can lead to new tumors uh, in many of them. Generally, that doesn't happen in everybody. The tumor has to be in for quite a while to, to, to grow through the wall, but it's not uncommon. But more common is seen spread to the regional lymph nodes. And the small intestine has a, a fatty layer called the mesentery where the blood vessels come into it. Uh, and along the blood vessels are these lymph nodes. And those lymph nodes are commonly involved in, under the next site of spread of these tumors. <clears throat> so uh, where do these tumors occur? Well, we've talked about the small intestine. The small intestine is about... 500 to 700 centimeters long. And we did a study where we looked at over 100 consecutive patients and found that 78% of the patients who had just one tumor had it within the last three 
feet of the small intestine. And it was very uncommon to have it in the first uh, couple feet of the, the small intestine. And then, uh, well, uh, about half of our patients also had multiple tumors. And the most I've ever found is 129 in one uh, gentleman. And uh, certainly lots of people don't have nearly that many. I think the next person had about 60 or so. But finding anywhere from two to eight is not that uncommon. Fortunately, they often are clustered somewhat together so they can be removed with uh, one section of the intestine. So when we go to, to remove the primary tumor, what we do is we make an incision, usually in the midline, which means up and down in the center of the abdomen. And then what we'll do is we'll feel the entire small intestine. So as I mentioned, it's like 15 to 18 feet long. Most of these tumors are at the last part of the small intestine, but it's very important to feel the entire intestine. And that's the only way you're going to find if somebody has multiple tumors. And, you know, there is a push in general surgery to do more procedures laparoscopically these days. And the problem with doing a pure laparoscopic approach is that you, you're not using your fingers to feel the intestine. And using the surgical instruments laparoscopically is not adequate. So most people who are specialists who do a lot of laparoscopy for these tumors will make a small incision where they'll feel the entire bowel. And that's really critical because these tumors can be missed and you don't want to go through surgery more than once. <clears throat> this is, uh, I'm showing a picture right now of what a typical tumor looks like. And, and the small intestine in this picture is very dilated or enlarged leading up to this kind of whitish mass on the pink bowel that then after that the bowel is decompressed in abnormal size. And this is just a demonstration of how the tumors can narrow the intestine and cause a bowel obstruction. And a lot of patients will present with a bowel obstruction. And what that means is like all of a sudden they start throwing up and they just can't eat anything and nothing stays down. They get crampy abdominal pain. And that's because nothing can go through this obstruction. Operatively, what we do is after we feel the bowel and figure out where the lesions are, we're going to take out a segment of the intestine, but we're also going to remove the, the regional lymph nodes because, as we mentioned, so many people have lymph node metastases. And what you do is you follow the mesentery <clears throat> up to where it comes off the next major group of vessels. And that's where, you know, that contains the, the blood vessels and the lymph nodes, and that's how you clear those regional lymph nodes. Sometimes those tumors... Uh, will go up to even higher nodes. And um, and so sometimes you have to remove nodes that are even higher up than where the major segmental artery and vein branches come off the superimentary artery and vein. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll divide the artery and vein at the segmental branch and then go up higher and remove those additional lymph nodes to the best of our ability from around those major vessels. And that can be very complicated. And sometimes, frankly, it's not even possible. But in many cases, it is. And even if it's not possible to remove all those lymph nodes, patients can still live for a long time. Now, once we take out that section of intestine, we generally use a stapler to join the intestine back together. And we close the opening we made in the mesentery. And that removes the primary tumor and the lymph nodes. <clears throat> now, um, I mentioned that some people do it laparoscopically. And it's really important if you do it that way to feel the entire small intestine. But you can also make a small incision sometimes that uh, would allow quicker recovery and still allow for feeling the entire small intestine. 
Now, there are many benefits that patients get from removing the primary tumor because there are times where patients present with liver metastases and their primary tumor is in place and they may be given the advice from a medical oncologist in their local area that maybe there's no reason to remove the primary tumor. Uh, and that is true. Some people can do okay without having the primary tumor removed, but others will uh, develop a bowel obstruction or occasionally these tumors can bleed. Uh, many of us surgeons think that these are the tumors that metastasize the liver and that can lead to further liver metastases. And removing the primary tumor at least will stop metastasis from that site. It also prevents that situation where the tumor grows through the intestinal wall and then spits off cells into the abdominal cavity, which is something called carcinomatosis. And that can really complicate the situation down the road. <clears throat> also taking out the tumor may reduce hormone levels and may make you live longer. <clears throat> now, a lot of times when we do this small bowel resection, and we're in there, especially if a patient has liver metastases, we're gonna also wanna remove the gallbladder. You don't have to do this in every case, but in most cases, when you think a patient's gonna be on a long-term somatostatin analog, which is how we treat a lot of people after surgery to try to keep liver metastases from growing, um, well, that medicine that we use for that causes gallstones. And about a quarter of patients uh, who don't have their gallbladders removed, who are on these drugs, somatostatin analogs, are gonna need their gallbladder removed later on. So when I'm in there, I will usually remove the gallbladder. Not in all cases, especially if the patient requests that I don't, then, then I won't. But the gallbladder can also be at risk if somebody gets a treatment to the liver called embolization, and sometimes that can lead to problems with the gallbladder. Now, we've talked a little bit about the fact that some people present with more advanced disease. They have liver metastases. And liver metastases are often not just one. It's usually a lot of them. And they're going to be in both lobes of the liver in many cases. And it's not a simple thing to remove all of these or even treat all of these. <clears throat> and therefore, there are many different treatments for that. So one option is to do something called embolization, which I just mentioned uh, in context with the gallbladder, and that's where they inject some particles into the artery that goes up to the liver, and by blocking the blood flow to the liver through the artery, can selectively put the hurt on liver metastases, which gets most of their blood flow from that artery, whereas most of the normal liver get it from the portal vein. There's also radial embolization, where they give yttrium 90 beads in the same kind of fashion to block off small blood vessels. Uh, PRRT, peptide receptor radiotherapy, is another option for liver metastases. It probably works better on smaller tumors rather than larger tumors. And then somatostatin analogs, just getting sandostatin LAR or lanreotide, those are the two long-acting ones that are on the market, can be very useful for keeping tumors from growing for a while. And then systemic therapy, which means giving a drug that gets absorbed by the whole body, and in the case of small bowel tumors, is really just Everolimus, otherwise known as Affinitor, that's uh, FDA approved for that. <clears throat> and then finally, removing liver metastases or performing ablation where we basically burn the tumors uh, is another option. Um, so um, there, for small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, also known as mid-gut tumors, really the only FDA approved therapies, like I mentioned, are Affinitor, and then there's sandostatin, long-acting repeatable, or lanreotide. 
And then there is the PRRT, which was something called lutetium-177 dotatate. Um, <clears throat> so when we operate on patients with neuroendocrine tumors in the liver, you know, the advantage of, of operating on them is you can remove the primary tumor and the lymph nodes at the same time and also the gallbladder as the time that you work on the liver. And removing the liver metastases can really help control symptoms and hope uh, uh, and can lead to a survival benefit. But the, the one thing to remember is that when you have liver metastases, and especially if you have multiple liver metastases, which applies to most people who have them, that recurrence happens in the majority of patients. Uh, so we're not usually curing patients with our surgery uh, to the liver. We are basically setting back the clock so that people can live longer and have lower hormone levels, but tumors will eventually recur. Um, and there are different ways of uh, removing these. You can do big resections or you can do more ablations. Uh, and we use a combination of uh, treatments where you remove some and you do ablation on other ones. And we try to spare as much normal liver as we can. And we know that uh, from certain studies that if, if we really want to make a dent in improving survival and improving hormones, that we have to get out at least about 70% of the liver metastases to, to really achieve that. There are multiple different ways of removing these. You can remove half the liver if it's only one half, but that almost never happens, usually in both halves. And you can selectively go around and do wedge resections on larger lesions. And one of the things that's different about neuroendocrine liver metastases than other liver metastases is that <clears throat> they don't usually infiltrate into the surrounding liver. So you don't need to get a lot of normal liver tissue around the liver lesions that you remove. So you can do wedge resections. You can also do something called enucleation. Enucleation is actually taking even less tumor around or less normal liver around the tumor where you actually shell the lesion out. And a lot of times the tumor is very hard and the surrounding liver tissue is very soft and it's relatively easy to find a nice plane between the hard tumor and the soft liver. And then finally, there's uh, different ablation techniques. I like microwave ablation because it's... Uh, more efficient and quicker than uh, radiofrequency ablation, which is what I used to use, but microwave is really more in vogue now. And this is a way where you can go around the liver with an ultrasound probe and identify lesions, put the probe into the liver, <clears throat> and then start cooking that uh, liver lesion by heat that's delivered along the probe. Um, so you can have scattered lesions, uh, you can have 20 or 30 or, or even more, and, and, and if they're in uh, good locations, you can really do uh, ablation of many of these things. And I'm just showing a picture of before and after an ablation. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that's important to realize is not everybody's going to benefit from liver resection. And the people who are least likely to benefit are people who have a lot of liver involved, like more than 50 to 70% of the liver. If there are many small metastases to both lobes, and, and when I say many, like 50 to 100 is a lot, and it's really hard to do a good job uh, on surgical treatment or ablation of those. <clears throat> if patients have carcinoid heart disease, then they're not gonna do well with a big operation because their heart may fail and the patients may die. Uh, from this, and you shouldn't select those patients. You need to fix the heart valve first. Um, and if patients really aren't 
getting around very well, they can't take care of themselves, then those are patients that a big liver operation might be too much for them. There are also certain tumors that are high grade. And what that means is under the microscope, they look uglier and they have much more cell divisions going on. And those patients have more rapid progression and they may not benefit from a very aggressive surgery as much. And then if you can't get 70% or more of the lesions, then you probably should not really be trying to cite or reduce them. Now, besides liver metastases, these tumors can go to other places. It's not uncommon to find them on the ovaries in females. Um, you can see them on the peritoneal surfaces when people have carcinomatosis, like I discussed, when the tumors grow through the intestinal wall. And really, at the time of surgery, we like to try to address all of those areas. How do patients do from surgery? Well, it sort of depends. It, it you know... Um, with patients who have earlier lesions, who have grade one lesions, the median survival can be really long. Um, in our experience of 211 patients who had grade one neuroendocrine tumors, um, uh, the median survival was almost 20 years. With grade two, that goes down to about 10 or 11 years. And when patients have grade three, and that's kind of the more malignant looking ones under the microscope, <clears throat> then the survival reduces significantly down to like anywhere from two to five years. So the grade of the tumor can be very important. And again, surgical resection is an important part of that. Our approach to neuroendocrine tumors here, just to kind of summarize everything, is we want to get rid of the primary tumor in the small intestine. We want to get rid of the regional lymph nodes that are involved with that. If somebody has peritoneal carcinomatosis with multiple lesions throughout, the abdomen, we're going to want to try to remove as many of those as we can. If it's appropriate, we'll remove the gallbladder at the same time. And if we think the patient can handle it, and in the, if the distribution of liver lesions is favorable, then we're going to want to do cytoreduction or removal and treatment of those liver lesions. So I try to do the best operation I can, and then I'll turn the patients over and follow them with one of my colleagues, Dr. Odoricio in the past, but also Dr. Dillon, Dr. Chandra Sakaran here, my endocrinology and medical oncology colleagues who we all follow these patients together. And we usually start with somatostatin analogs. Um, and then when patients progress, which might take several years after surgery, and what, what I mean by progress is that the tumors in the liver start coming back or any residual tumors that they might have had start getting bigger, then we need to move on to other things. For small bowel, that would be either Affinitor or PRRT, the radioreceptive therapy. So I think I'm going to stop there, and I just want to thank everybody for their attention. I also want to thank the great people that we have at Iowa. I am so lucky to work with Dr. Dillon and Chandra Sakarn, and I'm so fortunate that the, the Odoricios came here and recruited me to their team because it's really become my personal passion in medicine both clinically taking care of patients, but also basic science research. Um, we also have talented interventional radiologists, pathologists, uh, and other surgeons who work with me. Uh, and nuclear medicine <coughs> can't uh, overemphasize the importance of a multidisciplinary team to take care of these patients because the, the options for treatment are somewhat complex and all need to be considered in each patient at various times in their lives. So thank you very much uh, from, from me and from the University of Iowa. 
thank you, Doctor Howe. Uh, yeah, I, I could I can imagine working with the Odoricios just being their their personalities and their passions for this is just like absolutely infectious. So I'm sure it was very hard to not uh, get drawn into this for sure. I still got the bug. I can't shake the fever. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this uh, this presentation. If you like this presentation um, and you want more of this, uh, you know, more of this type of uh, presentation, please make sure you join us at our national conference in Atlanta, Georgia, this November 10th through 12th. Um, you can also probably see plenty of uh, Dr. Howe's uh, presentations on the NCAN YouTube channel. We probably have dozens of those up there. I know that you did get us our very first 18 and over uh, tag uh, due to some uh, some surgery photos. So, oh, oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You know what? Everybody gets one, I guess, you know? <laughs> um, so thank, thank you again. Um, if you want to help us out a little bit, please make sure you give, uh, you know, those quick five-star reviews, those, those, uh, you know, those likes, those subscribes, everything really does count. Um, it helps beat that algorithm and that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create more awareness. Uh, follow us again on all the social media, uh, platforms at net cancer aware, uh, go to our website, netcancerawareness.org for more information about all of our events and to also find a local chapter, near you and also there are many other resources to navigate this disease so thank you guys very much for joining us thank you dr howe and uh this has been let's get real we'll see see you next time perfect all right